Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That's Bruce Springsteen. He writes his songs, he sings his songs, he plays his songs. He's a writer. And that's what we're talking about today. My guest at 815, the great Scott Shepard, is going to teach us all about writing. He knows it firsthand. Beautiful career writing TV shows, and now he's writing mysteries, books. It made me think all week, knowing he'd be my guest about the wonderful world of writing in my life. And you know how much I love the world of art, the world of sports, and the world of surgery. Where, where are those writers that touched me in my lifetime? Well, in the world of art, the man that really touched me in the use of language, in the use of words, was the man who wrote the TV show The Twilight Zone. His name was Rod Serling. Jewish guy, by the way. Just like to collect that fact. But listen to him introducing a story that we're living now. Climate change. It's going to be 100 degrees every day for the next, I don't know how long. But 60 years ago, people didn't want to talk about this stuff. They didn't want to talk about racism. They didn't want to talk about fascism. Rod Serling realized they're going to censor me if I talk about these issues so I'm going to make this show all about aliens and robots. And no one cares about that. It's fantasy. But I can secretly tell the story. This is climate change 60 years ago. Listen to Rod Serling introduce the episode of The Twilight Zone. The word that Mrs. Bronson is unable to put into the hot, still, sodden air is doomed. Because the people you've just seen have been handed a death sentence. One month ago, the Earth suddenly changed its elliptical orbit and in doing so began to follow a path which gradually, moment by moment, day by day, took it closer to the sun. And all of man's little devices to stir up the air are no, no longer luxuries. They happen to be pitiful and panicky keys to survival. The time is five minutes to twelve, midnight. There is no more darkness. The place is New York City and this is the eve of the end. Because even at midnight, it's high noon the hottest day in history, and you're about to spend it in the twilight zone. Amazing. Listen to Rod Serling with a bunch of college students talking about how do you write? Where do the ideas come from? Is it hard to have ideas? Is it hard to write? Listen to his answer. Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue in your own language form uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled heard seen experienced felt emotionalized ideas are probably uh, in the air like like little tiny items of ozone that's the easiest thing on earth is to come up with an idea then the second thing is the hardest thing on earth is to put it down who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. Oh, so it takes a piece out of you when you take it seriously, when you really are doing this as a craft. What about the audience you're writing for? Fellini, when he makes a film, he doesn't care whether anybody ever sees it or not. Truly? Right. Is that a quote from Fellini? That's a quote from Fellini. Is that right? Interesting. I wonder if that really doesn't play hob with the function of an artist. If indeed you can say that I create for my own sake, my own edification, my own titillation, and to hell with anybody else, is that truly a gauge of art as a form? Because isn't art a shared experience? Isn't the excellence of art dependent on a reaction from the outside to someone's work? Yes. 
Now one of the students asks him, tell us about your technique. Do you make notes? Do you have an outline? How do you do it? Do you make notes and outlines and characterizations and plot outlines and things like that, or do you just take off and write? I take off and write out of a sense of desperate compulsion. I always write as if uh, I'd just gotten my x-ray from the doctor on Monday, <laughs> and he'd best check with the insurance man and see whether or not the house is free and clear. I always write with a sense of desperate urgency. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a preoccupation with my own demise, Doris. I think I'm good for another 18 months at least. But I, I always write as if, gee, get it down. Where do you get that talent? To Rod Serling, it's God-given. You're born with it. You're like Kobe. You're born with the talent. But you also have to work at it. You can't just rest on those laurels. Here's his response. All writers are born and never made. The talent to recreate in language, the experience of life, is, has to be God-given. On the other hand, uh, we can sharpen the wit of a writer. We can point out style to him. Uh, we can uh, use the criteria that is age-old, 3,000 years of theater, uh, that he can utilize to make a judgment on the value of his own work. Uh, we can show him what can move people, what can move human beings. He can go to see a play of Dyer Van Frank, and that's lesson one in the long facet of the human emotion. I would argue that writing is seeing. They just see things differently. They can actually see things ahead of the rest of us. Rod Serling used aliens and robots to tell stories about racism, fascism, and climate change before we caught on. This is from 60 years ago. Listen to Frank DeFord, my favorite sports writer, telling us 10 years ago about how bad the NCAA was for sports. And because he's a writer and knows how to use words, listen to him tell you the reason it's called, you're called a student athlete. I did not know this before. But this is from 10 years ago. Frank DeFord passed away. The NCAA is a cartel, first of all. That's, that's, it's, it's simply uh, OPEC uh, of sports. And it's run for the benefit of the schools and the athletic directors and the coaches. Um, it pretends to care for the athletes, and it doesn't. Um, as a matter of fact, you, you may be interested to know that the word student-athlete was created for a reason. Uh, not to have anything to do with academia, but if if you could name somebody a student athlete, then they could never sue for workman's compensation. That was the reason that it was created, and that's that's the thinking of of, of the NCAA. Frank DeFord built his career at Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated started in 1954. He joined in 1962. He's 24 years old. But this is when sports writing really took off. And I would argue it took off because of Frank DeFord. He was the greatest. This is the editor of Sports Illustrated, Terry McDonald. Just you'll hear a little bit of the words that Frank DeFord uses in terms of describing an athlete as being a natural. This is what Frank wrote in um, Everybody's All-American in 1981. He's talking about being a natural <clears throat> that it is the natural part of being a natural athlete, not that you are capable of performing naturally, but that you are natural in accepting the fact. <laughs> Frank, right? But, the, but the, the rap on Frank was that he was a natural writer. And this drew um, many, many reactions, actually. I knew I was a natural. And, and I, I know that sounds vain. But sometimes you, you are blessed and you're given a gift. And I always follow that up by saying how many natural athletes I knew who blew it, who, because it all came so easy, didn't work hard, didn't build on that natural gift. And so that prodded me, Terry. I knew that I had been blessed and could write. And I've met a great many writers who were not natural who succeeded tremendously. So it's, it's not like, well, you've been given the key 
and now you open the door and go through there. A lot of people who didn't get that key who had to bang their way in. And once they got in, they wrote better than some of the guys with keys. I think Frank DeFord's secret, and same thing for the secret of the success of Rod Serling, was they used writing and the craft in a different way. Even though Frank DeFord was a sports writer, he actually was writing stories about the athlete as people, not necessarily about the score. Rod Serling was writing his stories about social issues, and he hid them in mysteries and science fiction. Listen to Frank DeFord saying, I really didn't even care about the game. I was talking about the players. I never wanted to cover the games. I was lucky that I had to for seven or eight years. It was wonderful. The, the excerpt that you used this, this week, Sports Illustrated, is about the NBA. And to have to cover it and, and to, to be in the locker room and, and to, you know, sort of to be not just a kid but the private first class, to be sitting there and, and to, to get to know athletes and to travel and, and do all that, I'm glad that I had uh, almost a decade of it. But at, at that point I knew I couldn't do that anymore. I did not want to grow old as Mr. Basketball. You know, who knew all the facts and all the figures. I never cared about that. The commitment to your craft has got to be 100%. And his first editor, he's in his early 20s, Laguerre at Sports Illustrated, wanted to make it clear to him, it's just you. you got to do this 24-7. There's no room for you even to get married. Listen to this story. When I told Laguerre that I was going to get married, we were standing at the bar. I was making $10,000 a year, a lot of money in those days. And he put his scotch down and he said, oh, Frankie, that's the worst news I've heard in weeks. (laughs) 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 A real romantic. And um, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a $3,000 raise if you don't marry her. That's that's 30%. But he gave him also the best advice. He said, kid, it doesn't matter what you write about. All that matters is how well you write. Boy, that that meant the world to me because I think all of us wrestled with, is writing sports serious? I mean, are you throwing your life away just going to games? What what are your grandchildren going to say to you? Uh, Did you cover the civil rights? Did you cover Vietnam? No, I was at the Stanley Cup. You know, you, you worried about that. And he said that to me one night. And it, it, meant, it meant a great deal that all that really counted at the end of the day was how well you wrote something. That's all that matters, Frank DeFord, is how well you do whatever it is. Have pride and passion in what you do. And nobody has more pride and passion than what they do as a writer than my guest coming up next, the great Scott Shepard. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook Know Your Knee Posts. One of the most complicated areas of the body. ACL, PCL, MCL, patella supplication. Really? Dr. Clapper translates the language of your knee on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Simply type in Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Wow! Your knee feels better already. Damn right. Like, follow, and feel better with the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Hey, it's Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than when my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m., Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. This orthopedic surgeon is on fire. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Because I'm on fire. That's why. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go in? I can take you 
Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. As a New Yorker, the word fire is spelled F-I-A-H. There's no R in that word. I'm on fire. And joining me now is my favorite writer, W-R-I-T-A-H, in Los Angeles, the great Scott Shepard. Scott, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. Oh, thanks for having me on, Roddy. Good to talk to you. All right. Well, I... Michelangelo is dead for 500 years. He's my hero. I can't ask him any questions anymore. But Dr. Ranawad, who taught me how to be a surgeon, said the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. This is a radio show, so I don't have eyes, but I have ears. And I want to play a soundbite because my ears don't hear what my mind doesn't know. Tell us what Rod Serling means and what it means to you to hear this soundbite. Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about, translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue, in your own language form. Uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled, heard, seen, experienced, felt, emotionalized. Ideas are probably uh, in the air, like, like little tiny items of ozone. That's the easiest thing on earth, is to come up with an idea. Then the second thing is, the hardest thing on earth is to put it down. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. And I bleed. Scott Shepard, you've been a writer in TV for decades. Now you're writing mystery books. Do you bleed when you sit down at the computer, the typewriter, when you start writing? Do I bleed? Um, I, you know, I think what it is, um, it, for me, it's really just getting it all, getting something onto a piece of paper. Uh, I kind of like have uh, referred to like these, uh, a first draft as like a kitchen draft, a kitchen sink draft. I just like just get it out, get something on the paper, and then you can deal with it. Um, Hmm. And so I guess it's a form of bleeding, regurgitating possibly. (laughs) 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 I love when Rod Serling talks about technique. And as a surgeon, there's different ways to do the same operation. I guess as a writer, there's different ways. And certainly the difference between writing TV versus novels is a different medium. But is the technique the same for you? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, look, it's so wonderful that you, you know, you started with, you know, Rod Serling. I mean, he's definitely one of the two or three biggest influences, you know, on my life. I mean, I think it was the first TV show I watched. Um, I've seen all those episodes, you know, a hundred times. I actually spent a good part of my, you know, 20s, you know, trying to get every episode, before you could get, you know, the collection of those stories on DVDs or CD, you know, or, you know, Mm -hmm. DVDs or VHSs. I was like, literally, they would show them on the air and I was taping them every day, like at noon, you know, to see if I could get all of them. And I got like the first 70 or 80, but I literally, (laughs) it took me like a year and a half to get all 155 of them, you know, (laughs) because, because the stories were like so wonderful. I mean, I think that thing that you talked about, you know, the the uh, clip you played earlier about him, about telling the story about the, the bet that the guy made, mm-hmm. and the, the fact that, you know, you take a one-line idea, like the Chekhov story, and he showed how Chekhov solved it one way, which is a very positive way. Well, then Serling literally, you know, did a character study, but of course he put, as you say, his two switches on it mm-hmm. and ended up doing this macabre sort of ending. So, you know, to me, like, ideas are kind of like, like he says, it's sort of you don't know where they come from. They're a little bit of a dime a dozen. It's just what you do with them once you know you come up with the idea, and then you kind of it just sort of magically happens. I don't have a you know a, a, a way that it just actually appears. I kind of discover it as I go along. Mm. This is what he said. Curious to hear what you say about this. Do you make notes and outlines and characterizations and plot outlines and things like that, or do you just? Take off and write. I take off and write out of a sense of desperate compulsion. I always write as if uh, I'd just gotten my x-ray from the doctor on Monday, (laughs) and he'd best check with the insurance man and see whether or not the house is free and clear. I always write with a sense of desperate urgency. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a preoccupation with my own demise, Doris. I think I'm good for another 18 months at least. But I, I always write as if, gee, get it down. So you say regurgitation. He's like, you, you almost get the feeling there's a speed 
you just got to get it right there right now, but you're afraid it'll pass if you don't have the vision. Well, you know, everybody, Robbie, you know, writes differently. I know I have writers, you know, are really good friends and people I really admire who literally sit down every day and write, um, and they're very disciplined in terms of doing that. There are others who, you know, can go weeks and weeks before they write something. Um, Billy Wilder, who's another great influence, a great, the great uh, screenwriter and director who did movies like Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity and Some Like It Hot, um, he said back in the day, and I've said this to a lot of writers I work with and, and writers I teach when I teach, he used to say back in the day when he sat down at the typewriter computer these days, it was written in his head. Mm. Um, he wasn't one of those guys who could just sit down and go, like, what am I going to write today? And I'm, frankly, the way I kind of write that way. It's like I'm always just kind of walking around thinking, what if I do this? What if I do that? Or I'll tell somebody an idea that I'm working on. I'll talk a lot and I'll just kind of come out. And I realize I'm always writing. So when I sit down, then it's a matter of just getting everything I've been thinking about you know, onto a piece of paper mm. and go from there. Do you remember when Cupid shot you in the chest, what you were watching on TV or in a movie when you said, that's it, that's what I want to do? Um, no, I mean, I just knew, I just, I read a lot, you know, I mean, I think is, is where it sort of started, you know, I mean, um, uh, and I, I think this became a gradual thing because I was always reading and watching a lot of, you know, TV shows like, like The Twilight Zone and everything. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I think it started with the fact that I just happened to love mysteries and thrillers and then maybe kind of the adjuncts of, like, horror and, and fantasy. I kind of liked all those genre stories because there was a lot of story there. And um, so I think that was something that was really interesting to me. And, like, the first books I remember reading as a little kid, like a lot of boys did, was reading The Hardy Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and what was great about that was that I, my my uh, paternal grandmother lived in Kansas City and we're here in California, and she used to come out twice a year, and she'd bring me, I'm, I'm like seven or eight years old, you know, and she's bringing me, she would always bring me two Hardy Boy books, hmm. and I'd devour them. But the great thing about the Hardy Boy books is you'd finish the book, and on the last page of the Hardy Boy books, it would always say the two brothers would go like, and they couldn't wait until next you know, week <laughs> when they would be like the case of the old mill, right? Uh. And it was sort of like, you knew there was another one coming, right? And that's the first instance I ever sort of saw that. And that sort of led to me for this, you know, this love of detective fiction, you know, where the, all these writers, I have like 10,000, you know, uh, first editions of, you know, mysteries and, and thrillers and some of the other things I'm talking about. But a lot of them are continuing series of detectives or characters that progress. And it started with the Hardy Boys. Hmm. There's a soundbite I have here I want to play for you. Rod Serling talking about a dialogue technique and dialogue problem he even... I'm curious what you think about this. I don't think I'm aware of it, but very often one of the major problems with strong writers who deal in dialogue above plot, which happens to be, I think, more my forte than, than plot, dialogue. If you look at some of the pages of the stuff I've written and even some of the good things, shut your eyes, you won't know who's talking because they all talk alike. And who do they talk like? Me. Now, that's wrong. And it's something I've got to lick over the years. But it's the most common literary problem, I think, of strong dialogists. You're such a strong writer. Do you ever have to check yourself or you trust yourself? Um, I trust myself a lot more than I used to. Uh, I mean, when I was first starting out, I would literally go into, like, close to almost panic attacks. where Not so much like writer's block. Uh, but I, I literally, you know, I, I couldn't figure out something. I just like, hmm. you know, be wander around circles around the house. But over the years, and I think this probably comes from you know working in television for over thirty years and running shows, and 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 it's so story driven that I just kind of sort of count on the fact that it'll come to you. And the strange place is, you know, I tell my wife all the time that it usually comes like when I'm standing in the shower. I think it's like literally the idea, you're the doc, you could tell me about this, it's like <laughs> the water beating on my head. Yeah. <laughs> it's like sometimes going, oh, you know, I should do that, you know. Um, I'm not one of those writers, you know, who, you know, I have crazy dreams and everything like that, but um, I don't think I've ever had um, an idea that's like come to me like in a dream. Hmm. You know, I mean, there's the old story. It's, it's the great story about, like, you know, about the writer who has these great dreams, and he, 
but he can't remember them the next morning, and so he, he can't write anything down. So his wife says, why don't you keep, you know, like a pad by the bed? So when you have this dream, you wake up, you write something down. So he has this amazing dream. He wakes up in the middle of the night, he puts like something on a, on a piece of paper, falls asleep, wakes up the next morning, he tells his wife, oh, I, had this, I, I forgot this, I had this great idea, I can't remember... I can't remember what it is. Oh, yes, I wrote it down. And he looks at the piece of paper, and on the piece of paper, he's written three words, and it says, boy meets girl. Ah! <laughs> 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 Big help that is. Well, that's just fantastic. To hear the journey of television to now writing books, I really want to get into that, and I really want to get into your latest book. You're, you're a teacher as well at the University of Texas now, I want to get into what it is that you can convey to a young writer of the secrets to the craft. So can you stay on for another segment? Sure. Okay, let's pay some bills, Steve Paulette. We'll come back. We're talking to the great Scott Shepard, my favorite writer in Los Angeles. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go in? Miss an interview or Doc's weekly story? Check it out on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Also, Doc's advice to callers on their aches and pains. Just type Weekend Warrior in the Facebook search bar and you'll see Doc's picture in the listings. And thanks for checking out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Don't they ask the Lord. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Yo, Tango, un lapis amarillo. Thank you. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. We go down to... Welcome back, Weekend Warriors, talking to the great Scott Shepard, a writer, a writer of television, and now a writer of books, novels, mysteries. Tell us more, Scott, about the transition of going from writing TV to writing a novel. Um, well, I mean, it's funny because I, like I was saying, I, I've always read, like, these kind of books, um, but I fell into television and loved it, and, and still am working on it. Um, and what, you know, the thing about television, which I, you know, and the, and the, and the class that I teach with my uh, partner, uh, professor writer uh, Cindy McCurry down in Texas, is um, it's a it's a writers room class. It's about how we replicate a room to show how writers work together on a television show in a writers room. And television is a you know. Uh, as wonderful as it is, it's a collaborative process. You know, if you're a writer, you know, I, what I, one of the first things I teach, you know, these, you know, students is that you have to be there for your fellow writers as a staff. You're putting together 13 episodes, 22 episodes of a show, and your episode, if you're writing number five, is only as good as number four or mm. number six is. And you have to be contributing to everybody because you're all sort of working together. Mm. And, you know, that's something that uh, we always sort of ended up, you know, we, we talk about. And, and then the thing that I kind of realized, though, that over the course of the years, I started working with a number of really terrific novelists. You know, we, I've worked on a couple of Stephen King shows, which uh, The Dead Zone and Haven, which we adapted from books of his, um, Harlan Coben, big bestseller writer. We developed stuff together. And I became, I met more writers and I really had this desire to write novels. And then I used to be the person because structure was always something pretty simple for me that I would not really write many outlines. I would kind of like write on a piece of paper, like bar, uh, murder, kiss, over. And then mm. I could figure it out from there. Mm. But I started writing these longer and longer outlines in prose, these 40, 50 page outlines, which I could see I was kind of yearning to, you know, kind of just be able to write the novels that I read. And, and the thing that I learned, the big difference between writing television and writing, you know, books was, I used to say that if I ever was going to do my autobiography about television, I was going to call it, it's not a radio show, mm. as opposed to the radio show we're on, right? <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> literally, it's the there in front of you. When I started writing novels, uh, 
um, I kind of realized, wait a sec, it is a radio show. It's, mm-hmm. You know, you have to describe everything, mm-hmm. which was great for a writer. I mean, I got to be able to really kind of really dig down and start to do that. So I wrote a couple novels um, about four or five years ago, a noir thriller that became a horror book and then an apocalyptic Western. But I always had wanted to write you know, a thriller, a mystery, and you talk about where the ideas come and they sit. And so the book that's coming out on Tuesday, my third book, but my first mystery thriller, and it's called The Last Commandment, is an idea I've actually had in my head for like 30 years, but I never got around to doing it. I used to say, as writers, I always have lots of ideas. I just have to get to them. It's kind of like um, they're planes on a runway, and I'm the person in the control tower going, okay, you're up next. Now you can finally deal with this one. <laughs> it's almost, I mean, if I were to give a clap revision to your journey, you start out in television and writing for TV, as you describe how collaborative. You're on a basketball team where you have to wonder where the big man is, the point guard, pass the ball, move the ball, that there's other players on your team to win the game. Now you've become Pete Sampras. You're now playing tennis. You're doing a single sport as a single person because in that room it's just you and the piece of paper as the writer of the novel you're not really on a team anymore. Is that, is that fair? It's, no, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, you remember, you know, I mean, George Carlin, the, the great comedian, used to do that routine about um, football versus baseball, mm-hmm. uh, how he would sort of say in football it's sudden death, and in baseball it's extra innings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he says we play in a stadium, you know, in football, and in baseball it's like because we play in the park and just mm-hmm. want to get home. Uh, you know, and I kind of realized that writing for television is like football and basketball. It's a sports analogy in the sense that, you know, it's a very controlled, um, you know, an hour television show, a half hour, I did drama, so I do drama, so it's an hour or a two-hour movie. Like basketball and football, there's quarters, right? You literally have, you're running to either 48 minutes or 60 minutes, and there's certain places where it breaks. You've got to tell a story that fits within those confines. Hmm. A novel starts like baseball, and then eventually you know it's going to, you, you know how it's going to end. It ends when you win or when you get to the end of the novel, but you just start and you just go, and it'll end when it ends, and you find, you know, your way going through it, which has been really wonderful. Like what you, that sound bite you played of Rod Sterling, you just sit down and you just go. Mm-hmm. And I've been, like these mystery, like this mystery I just did, you know, the one that's coming out, and I've just finished the follow-up that'll come up next year because it's the beginning of a series. I wrote them without outlines. I kind of had an idea what the ending was. Well, in the one that's coming out, I knew what the ending was. But the one I just finished, the one that's coming out a year from now, I started it. I had a great hook. I had no idea who did it, how they did it. I go, you know what? I've been doing these kind of stories for 30, 40 years. I'll figure it out as I go along. To and ha- it's exciting. To have that kind of confidence and trust in yourself is fantastic to be able to rely on that. Um, last question. Just like Frank DeFord, here, I'll, I'll play the soundbite, talks about, even though he's a sports writer, it's really not about the sport. It's not about the game. I never wanted to cover the games. I was lucky that I had to for seven or eight years. It was wonderful. The, the excerpt that you used this, this week, Sports Illustrated, is about the NBA. And to have to cover it and, and to, to be in the locker room and, and to, you know, sort of to be not just a kid but the private first class to be sitting there and, and to, to get to know athletes and to travel and, and do all that, I'm glad that I had uh, almost a decade of it. But at, at that point, I knew I couldn't do that anymore. I did not want to grow old as Mr. Basketball, you know, who knew all the facts and all the figures. I never cared about that. His editor said to him, it doesn't really matter what you're writing about. It's just how well you write. Steve Jobs used to say the journey is the reward. It's in a mystery, in a, in a killer thriller. Yeah, you find out who actually did it, but as a writer, for you, it must be the journey, right? That's where all the fun is of how you color in the painting and all the, the characters and what they're thinking and the suspense that the bomb is underneath their chair, but they just don't know it. It must be just a thrill to be able to color it all in. You know, what's most important to me are the characters. It was, you know, it's one of the reasons when I read these novels I've collected, people write 20, 30 books about the same characters. The plots are great, but you're really watching the characters grow up. And mm-hmm. In The Last Commandment, it's about 
three characters. It's about a Scotland Yard cop who's retiring in three weeks. You know, his wife died a year ago. He's literally estranged from his daughter for some reason. And, and then the series of murders happens. It starts in London, then ends up taking him to New York, where there's a young cop who he has to work with. And he starts to get reconnected with his daughter. And it's about those three characters, and the series of books will be about them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, the serial killer that's in the book and the the murders are really like an engine to be able to tell the tale of the story, you know, that, the, you know, about these characters that I want. That's what, you know, bringing it full circle. That's what was so great. And why Rod Serling to me was so brilliant, you know, um, uh, is like you say, you know, he, well, there was about climate change in the midnight Sunday. That was the name of the episode you were talking about, you mm-hmm. know, that you've been playing clips from. Um, I always tell my students and I tell writers that there's, you know, the way, the kind of stories that are important to me, and one of my favorite Twilight Zones was a thing called Walking Distance. It was one of the first ones with a, with an actor named Gig Young, and it's about a, an advertising executive who's, you know, you know, a, he's not happy in life, and he gets stranded, and he goes back to his small hometown, and suddenly he's in his hometown when he was there. It's 30 years earlier. He's like in the hometown. It's it's back when he was a child, and he actually runs into himself, and he runs into his father. So you have this whole time travel element, but what the whole story builds up to is actually him actually talking to his father, and, and he's the same age as his father, and his father is telling me he has to go back to wherever he came from. He says, you know, you, you know this is this little boy's summer. It's not your summer, and he tells, you know, his son, who's now his same age in this weird, you know, Twilight Zone way. He says, is it that really that bad where you're from? And he says, I thought so, Pop, but maybe not. And it allows him to go back to the future, to the present, in a better state of mind. And what Serling really wanted to write was a character study, and he just used the genre piece as something that was really interesting. And that's mm-hmm. what I think the really great mystery writers and thrillers and I aspire to do, is to find, you know, great plots, but to really talk about character. And that's what's really exciting. That's why you're so amazing. Scott, those students are lucky to have you at the University of Texas, and we're lucky to have you as well. The book comes out Tuesday, and it's called The Last Commandment, correct? That's it. Yeah, terrific. Yeah, right. thank you. Thanks so much for, uh, for enlightening us, and uh, the Weekend Warrior Nation will be there uh, to buy this book and really get into the beginning of many books with these characters. I want to thank you so much for getting up early to be with us. All right. Thank you, Robbie. Okay. The great Scott Shepard, my favorite writer in Los Angeles. Coming up next, we'll open the clinic. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Holy emoji, clap man. Weekend Warriors on Facebook. Holy slip disc. That's right, Robin. Hear listeners talk about their aches and pains. Holy hamstrings. Along with Doc's clapper vision. Breathe deeply. And advice to callers. On your toes, Robin. So like, follow, and enjoy. A wise decision. The Weekend Wear Facebook page. Frankly, I can think of nothing more stimulating. Hey, what's up? It's LZ. Look, you know there's no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show. 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Tell him Dr. Clapper sent you. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Hey, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. Forget about it there, all right? No more beer. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN. 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Being my friend, I said you called Dr. Robert. Dr. Robert Clapper. Day or night, he'll be there any time at all, Dr. Robert. <laughs> How did Steve Paulette go back in time and get the Beatles to write a song about this show? He's a time traveler. But I know how he did it. He got Jared Abrams. He got Jared Abrams to get a hold of the Beatles. Because only Jared Abrams could track people down for this show like none other. What a pleasure. Learn about a whole different world of writing. But it's really seeing. You got to visualize it. And then the words come. I remember Eric Clapton being interviewed. He said, I know I have a gift. I can hear the song in my head. I can close my eyes and make my fingers make the guitar sound like what I hear. It's the same thing as a writer. It's taking that thought and making it something you can touch. 
being a sculptor in marble, looking at the block and just seeing that figure trapped in the stone. Vasari, who was Michelangelo's biographer, visited him in his studio and he wrote, Watching him work was as though a woman nude underneath the water in a bath. And all Michelangelo did was walk in, pull the drain plug, and as the water receded, the figure appeared. Using words to describe a visual, it's awesome. It's a gift. It's a talent. And you're born with it. And Scott Shepard has it. All right. Clinic's open. The number's 877-710-ESPN. Steve Pallette, who are we going to first? We're going to Ra- Jeff, who lives in Rancho Cucamonga. I have no idea. I know what a rancho is, but I don't know what a Cucamonga is. And it sounds like, listen, you can call me anything you want, but just don't call me a Cucamonga. How you doing? All right, Jeff and Cucamonga. How young are you? What do you do for a living? I'm 43 years old. I'm a teacher. Ah. And... Um, you know, I got this this pain on the inside of my elbow every time I flex my my wrist. There you go. And, guess what? Guess that. Guess yep. the the correlation to that. You can either extend your wrist, like holding a san, a can of uh, soda, or Adolfo likes to hold a bottle of Corona beer with a lime in it. I might add, but holding the bottle of Corona, you are extending your wrist, just like you do the backhand for tennis. The muscles, the brachioradialis, the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis, the, the muscles that let you extend your wrist that come from the big, big, uh, the thumb side of your elbow, the lateral side, that's where they come from. But guess what? If your palm's up, the little finger side of your elbow, the medial side, is where the flexors come from so that you can squeeze a ball and squeeze the bottle of Corona that's the flexors to your wrist and hand. So that's why it hurts in that because that's where they originate from. And your clapper vision is your Velcro ripping the tendon and the muscle off of the bone and microscopically it bleeds. That's called a golfer's elbow, by the way. Do not let anyone shoot you with a needle, a cortisone, or any stem cells or whatever because the ulnar nerve is right underneath the skin there. You know when you hit your funny bone? That's the ulnar nerve. And that feeds the hand to spread your fingers, and it feeds sensation to your little finger, your pinky, and one half of your ring finger. So you don't want anybody messing with that with a shot, in my opinion. The treatment is to wear a sleeve. You can do exercises with a physical therapist. Get an x-ray, make sure the bone is okay, the joint's okay. But that's how I would proceed with your elbow in the land of Cucamonga. Okay, yeah, it's been bothering us about a year now, and I, I work out, I don't know, six, seven days a week. Well, so that's why. Time, your grip. So if are you using the same dumbbells? Are you using the same uh, Nautilus machine? I would tell you this. As simple as this, Jeff, go ahead and figure out how to change the width of the grip, either on the dumbbell or on the Nautilus machine. If you made your hand have to squeeze a slightly wider handle, you would then put microscopically less stress on that fiber that's torn, and you will feel better. Okay. You know, golfers get this all the time. You know what they do? They will wrap a new grip and make the grip either wider or usually wider than the one they're using. Tennis players do this as well. They put a grip around the grip that the manufacturer comes with, the tennis racket or the golf club. You make it wider. You then don't have to grip as tight, and your pain goes away. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Well, you are a teacher. What do you teach? Physical education. Where? In a high school? school. In a high school. Okay. Listen, in our society, nurses are number two. Number one are teachers. And so I don't need you to find a total stranger today to do something nice for them because every day you get up and go teach those young kids, you're doing God's work. And I appreciate that immensely. You're not paid enough, highlighted enough, and keep doing what you're doing, changing the lives of the young ones and inspiring them. So thank you for all that you do, Jeff. I appreciate it, doctor. Okay, young man. Have a good day today. God bless you. All right. We got time. We'll take another call. Who we got? 
We got Barbara and Dana Point. Wow. Dana Point used to be, before they put the harbor in, according to Bruce Brown, my good friend, the greatest break. Forget Rincon or Malibu. It was Dana Point till they put the harbor in. And then they ruined the surf spot that is Dana Point. He loved it so much, Bruce Brown, that one of his sons is named Dana. He named it after the surf break. Can you imagine? So cool. It is totally cool. How can I help you? So anyway, Dr. Clapper, I started experiencing pain about two months ago. I'm, I'm, I work in the field of radiology. I do mammography. I've called you before. And all of a sudden, I just couldn't walk. My ankle was, like, killing me. I finally said I can't be on the floor every day and stand. So anyway... I had an MRI, and the MRI, I'm going to go real quick to it because it's, it's on my phone. It showed that I actually have, uh, you know, a lot of stuff in the impression that there's a tear, there's a perineal tendon sheath thickening, there's, but the biggest thing, and there's effusion, it says that it's, uh, findings are consistent with osteonecrosis of the dome of the talus mm. with compromise or flattening of the dome. Mm. But then I had a CT, and the doctor said there's no collapse, so he kind of just dismissed me. He goes... You'll have to go to some other doctor for the pain. So okay. I'm like, what? I felt like I tell And then you I always ask yourself, why did you become a doctor if you have no heart inside that chest? Exactly. Of yours? I was there like, so he gave me a name of another doctor to go see. But I'm like, I just, I said to him, I go, I feel like you just don't want to do my case. I said, he goes, I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, so there's no surgery involved, so that's it. Unbelievable. You know, I know. I don't know where where do we begin uh, complaining, fetching about all this stuff. I don't want to focus on the bad stuff in life. You don't need me to remind you what a terrible world it can be. What I like doing is pointing out how beautiful it can be. And so, yeah. young lady, you got a pencil? This is who you're going to go see. Okay, good. I'm living day in a point, Orange County. I don't I care. I don't care. You got four wheels on your car, and you're going to get in your car. And you know where you're going to come? You're going to come to Cedar sinai And I'm going right, to give you three names. Can you imagine? Okay. Three names. Three fantastic guys. If you are my sister... This is who I'm sending you to. Okay? You ready? Good. I'm ready. David Thordeson, Cedar sinai Love him. That's the first. Here's the second. Okay. Max Mahalski. All these guys have been guests on this show. Oh, okay. And third, Timothy Charlton. And when you go to their office and you tell them, Dr. Clapper sent me, they will get the biggest smile on their face. Now, when you call their office, they may say you can't come for a while. You're going to have to do a trick. You know what the trick is? What? You're going to have to say, hey, don't give me an appointment for three months. I'm Dr. Clapper's cousin. And you know what the, the, oh. the, the receptionist will say? <laughs> She'll say, you know, he has a lot of cousins. <laughs> yeah, because they're all the weekend warriors. That's why. That's anyway, right. that's what you're going to do. Because basically what you're, what you're describing, would you like a Clapper vision? Yes, I would. That would be great. You are having pain in the dome of your talus because the MRI can actually show termites eating the wood under the linoleum in the kitchen floor. The cartilage, the kitchen floor, the linoleum is something that we see on the CAT scan or the x-ray and it looks fine. But you don't know if you come into my kitchen, you don't, I don't know if there's termites in the wood underneath, but an MRI will tell me and trust me termites in the wood are painful that's why you have pain yeah you don't have collapse but you're having pain because the termites are doing their damage to the bone and that's the necrosis that the mri shows the cat scan or the x-ray only shows you if god forbid the linoleum actually sinks that's that's you know the cow's out of the barn by then now is actually the time to do something about it not to wait for collapse so do not let anybody shoot you up with cortisone, stem cells, PRP, synvis. No needles into your ankle. But you need the blessing of information. That's what I'm going to get for you if you go to either Thordeson, Charlton, or Mahalski. Okay? Okay. Perfect. Now, young lady, I want you to find a total stranger today. Do something nice for them. That's how you'll be thanking me. I will do that for you. Thank you so much, Dr. Clapper. Okay. God bless you, and thanks for listening. appreciate it. All right, Warriors, we got to talk about food. I only have a couple of minutes left. Where in Los Angeles can you, speaking of writing, we talked to Scott Shepard today, writing in food. I think I, I thought about it all week, and then Thursday night I said to my wife, it's 8 o'clock at night. I know they close at 10. We got to go. I think I remember 
getting a chili dog with a beefsteak tomato on top of it, which is like the most delicious. I've been to Pink's and Cupid. They're all great. But this, that tomato. But I think when I went, they wrote down as writers my order on the cardboard box that they then gave me the chili dog with. My wife looks at me and goes, are you crazy? You want to go get a chili dog now at 8 o'clock? I, will you please come with me, I said to her. God bless my wife. She got in the car. We drove on Ventura Boulevard in the valley. There's no valet parking in the valley. You park right there and you go up the steps into a train. Take your kids. It's unbelievable. Tell them Dr. Clapper sent you. You're going to Carney's and get the Carney dog. I don't know what it is. They're geniuses. First of all, they're going to write your order on the cardboard box. But then you're going to put a Carney dog, which is mustard. You can get yellow or brown. The chili, onion, and two slices of the biggest, fattest beefsteak tomatoes that I think they have their own farm for. You will take a bite, and the first thing that's going to happen, other than that coolness, temperature-wise, of that tomato touching your upper mouth, is the pop and snap. And then the chili will kick in, which is warm and creamy. I'm telling you, and the technique is don't unwrap the wrapping because otherwise that chili will go all over your hands. My mouth, I can't even speak. My mouth is watering so much. Unwrap the wrapping slowly as you take each bite so that you can make sure that every amount of the chili stays and is edible by you. I almost need a knife and fork to eat that chili dog, but that tomato is the kicker. That's why that chili dog is different. But get ready for them to write down your order on the cardboard box. That's why I'm talking about carnies in the valley. Let's talk about next week. My guest, I like to mix it up, so my next week's going to come from the world of medicine. He's a surgeon, and he's a world-class liver surgeon. He does liver transplants, you know, an operation that takes 10, 12 hours. They use 100 units of blood, but they save people's lives. So who in sports had a liver transplant? Guess who? Mickey Mantle my favorite baseball player. Who in art had a liver transplant? David Crosby from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We're going to talk about liver transplants in art, in sports, and in surgery next week on The Weekend Warrior. Until then, I leave you you with Volare, and I'll see you on the radio. Weekend Warriors on Facebook. Didn't you get the memo? Quickly hear Clapper's crazy kitchen stories. Easily find different callers' aches and pain issues. Right, I get it. Search Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Who are you again? Voila! Like, follow, and enjoy the Weekend Warrior Facebook page.